Good morning. Um, I should introduce myself a little bit more. Uh, my name is Dan, and uh, I have a family here. Actually, they all left. Where do they go? <laughs> I just disappeared. Uh, some of them are there. Uh, I have four children, um, married to Caroline, who's actually probably taking one of the children to the bathroom. Um, been married to her for 13 years. We live in Malden, and as Fletcher said, uh, the latest uh, thing that I was doing was pastoring um, a church that I planted uh, over eight years ago um, in Malden, and currently we are part of the Seven Mile Road Melrose uh, family. So um, yeah, this is, I haven't preached in quite some time. It's, it's kind of nice. My kids like to say I'm retired, um, far too young to be retired. I wish I was retired, actually. Um, but they, they say I'm retired, and they're like, you're, you're not retired anymore. You're, you're back to work. I'm like, no, I've been working. I actually work with Carter. Um, I've been working for a while, but um, yeah, I think just because I'm home more often, I'm you know, not doing church stuff as much, um, I think they, they think I'm retired. So um, Anyway, so I, I met Fletcher several years ago. Right? I think uh, we did like a church boot camp type of thing. Um, he was leading that, and that was, was really a, a fun time, and that's where we got to develop a friendship, and I've admired kind of his leadership in the Boston area, especially um, his involvement with uh, the Boston Center of Biblical Counseling, you know, members of my church, myself, I've benefited from that, um, so really just appreciate um, all that he's done uh, in the city. It's really cool. Another thing you should know and another uh, reason why the gospel is true is I should not be in this pulpit this morning. Here's why. Say for the gospel, Fletcher and I should not be friends. Uh, I recently learned that Fletcher supports Arsenal Football Club. Yeah. Does anyone else here support Arsenal? Yeah, I heard. I, I heard about you guys. Um, I, myself, support Tottenham Hotspur. I know. And uh, if you are a, uh, a fan of the English Premier League, you know that we should not be in the same room. That's right. You just cursed me. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> um, and yeah, I found out Fletcher supports Arsenal Football Club. But you know what? The gospel reconciles us. The wall of hostility has been broken down by His blood, and so we are here today as a testimony to Christ's redeeming work. Amen. Okay, all right, so that's why I'm here. Uh, we get to share the pulpit together, Arsenal and Tottenham, uh, even though we are bitter rivals. I'm actually gonna be in London in a few weeks to go see the, the, the uh, rivalry there. So anyway, excited about that. Can't wait to beat you guys. Um, let me read the scripture for us, Daniel chapter six, uh, and then we'll pray and we'll get into our time together. There it is. Uh, I'm going to read just the first 13 verses, Daniel chapter 6. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps thought to, sought to found ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. 
but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then those men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, um, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time that we get to sit under your word. And I pray as we begin this year, that your voice would ring loud, your voice would be the first thing we hear, that it would set us on course. I pray that you would do the thing that only you can do today, which is transform our hearts, shape us and mold us, help us to walk in the light of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, I wanna tell you about a recent addition to my Mount Rushmore of holidays, okay? so. On that Mount Rushmore, you got Christmas, you have Thanksgiving. I don't have Easter on there. Is that, is that okay? Okay, does that make me a bad Christian? Okay, shoot. Ah, dang, bad start. Um, Jesus still loves me, it's okay. Um, the most recent addition to my Mount Rushmore of holidays is Marathon Monday. Anyone else? Nobody. Come on, we live in Boston. Uh, living in Boston for the last 14 years um, has made me really appreciate the Boston Marathon. Uh, just the spectacle of it and all, of, all the things that uh, are surround it, uh, the history of it. And for the last several years, my family and I have really camped out we go visit a friend, we camp out at the Newton Fire Station, that corner where they make a turn on like mile 17 or 18 around there. We, and we, we're just, we love it. It, it. The crowd is buzzing, the, the runners are, are, are whizzing by, they make that turn, it, there's loud music, there's tambourines and all these things. And, and I play the part of the dad that yells far too loudly and embarrasses his children. Uh, and I love it. Uh, my kids hate it, but I love it. I love cheering on the runners, and it's just super, super fun. 
Now, I've never run the Boston Marathon. Has anyone run the marathon? Maybe, okay. Or aspires to. I, I've actually run two half marathons, and I did the math. If you add them up, it's 26.2 miles, so <laughs> mathematically, I'm a marathoner. Anyway, I, I think the reason Marathon Monday is such a highlight for me and has made my Mount Rushmore of holidays is because something about the marathon, about the, the length of it, the difficulty of it, just really impresses me. And I'm no longer impressed at, I know I look like I'm 26 and barely able to rent a car, but uh, at my age now, I'm no longer impressed by hype. And I, I appreciate um, people that do hard things over a long period of time. So these days, my attention isn't grabbed by, you know, the latest startup that has a million users, you know, after 10 months, or the, the latest church that started with a thousand people on their very first Sunday, or whatever it may be. I, I'm not really impressed by all the hype and all the hoopla. What really moves me is the underestimated accomplishment of finishing something well. Whether that's a woman who's kind of been in the postal service for 30 years and finally retires after faithful work there, or the couple that's been married for half a century and you know, they're, they're still happily married, or the pastor who's maybe passing on his ministry after 40 years in the same church and, and passing it on to, to somebody else. What really moves me is when I hear about someone who has done something very difficult for a very long time and arrives at the end in one piece. See, Flash grabs the headlines, but faithfulness, to me, is way more beautiful. The older I get, I realize that it's so hard to remain faithful for so long. It's easy to create hype, right? It's easy to post something to Instagram and show all the glitz and glamour on your rise to the top. It's, it's easy to do all of that. But to stay committed to something, to one thing, for a very long time, that's a rare accomplishment these days. So as we enter into a brand new year, as we start off 2023, I hope you're not just thinking about what the next 365 days are gonna do for you, what the next year is gonna bring for you. I hope you start thinking about how this next year is gonna set you up for the next 50 years. So I wanna draw your attention to Daniel, uh, a chapter in, uh, in the book of Daniel that reminds me of the beauty of faithfulness over the long haul. All right, so if you have your Bibles, uh, go back to Daniel chapter six. Uh, it's page 898 in my Bible. It's in the Old Testament, a little after the middle. Uh, this morning, I want, you, I want to introduce you to the story of the prophet Daniel. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this story, the first few verses do a great job of uh, kind of catching us up to the context. Right away, in chapter uh, six, verse one, we're introduced to Darius the Mede, who is yet another king over Babylon, over this kingdom. Since the first chapter of Daniel, there have been uh, actually several kings, uh, but this is the third one mentioned. So there have been several kings and kingdoms um, that have been ruled over this place that Daniel's been exiled to. Historically, there have been you know, a lot of kings and kingdoms that have come and gone. And what you need to know is in the beginning chapters, 
Daniel was accompanied by several young Jewish boys, uh, and they were captured in Jerusalem and brought to foreign exile in this land. And they were indoctrinated in several ways, in, in their education, their food, their religion, all of it. And these four young boys were even given new names to signify their new identities that they were going to have in this, um, in this land. They were named Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar. And if you're wondering, Belteshazzar is our guy. His Hebrew name was Daniel. Now, by the time of Daniel chapter 6, it's been six decades since they were first brought over from Jerusalem. So 60 years have passed since these young boys were first brought into captivity. Now, you need a, a little bit more context to appreciate where we are with Daniel this morning in this chapter of his life. Because if you consider Daniel, the prophet Daniel, he's you know, probably close to 80 years old at this point, he should not be where he is today. He's experienced, if you consider his life, he's experienced incredible trauma at a very young age. He was ripped from his birth home that was uh, decimated by enemies. He was ripped from the comfort of his family and friends that he grew up with. He was indoctrinated in a foreign land with foreign customs and a foreign language. Then, after all of that, a great turn of events, he, he kind of rose to celebrity rather quickly at a very young age. God gave him an opportunity to interpret a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two, and ever since that opportunity, he had been a high-ranking official in, the, in one of the world's greatest and largest empires. He had great power and great responsibility from a young age, even after all that trauma. And he carried that weight of leadership for most of his life. He did that in a, for decades in a godless culture. Right? This was in Jerusalem, where people were sh uh, speaking about the things of God, shouting shalom to one another in the streets. This was Babylon, where the presence uh, of God was not to be found where the pressures to follow other gods was strong and around every single corner, right? The, the rhetoric in the classrooms, the, uh, the workplace conversations, all of it was godless at best and anti-God most of the time. And to think about all the things that he was witness to, he saw the rise and fall of many kingdoms. He saw his friends thrown into a fiery furnace and survive. For some time, his job was to counsel a certifiable, insane man, Nebuchadnezzar. He was witness to the fall of, a rise and fall of Babylon and kingdom after kingdom. Daniel had to reconcile the reality that God allowed corrupt kings to rule over him when all they did was make his life miserable for him and others. If you put all these pieces together, it makes you wonder how in the world Daniel lasted this long. How did he last this long in such a hard place? How has he managed to keep the faith and still pursue God well into maybe his 80s at this point? 
And I think that's one of the headlines of this book. Because when kings and kingdoms have passed, when, when things change and turn over so quickly with great frequency, the only steady and lasting thread through the book of Daniel is the presence of God and Daniel's unwavering faithfulness to him. It's the presence of God and Daniel's unwavering faithfulness to him. And those are the two things I want, to, I want you to see in his story, okay? From the jump, Daniel chapter one. Even with the new ruler in town, Daniel was one of three high officials and he, he was appointed to govern, these officials were appointed to govern the kingdom and, and give counsel to the king. Now, Daniel wasn't just any official. In verse two, it says that he was the distinguished one above the two high officials. Now, why? Why was he distinguished above the two other ones? Verse three, because an excellent spirit was in him. In other words, the spirit of God was rich inside of Daniel. And so the king's plan was to, to, that Daniel would soon become the second in command over this new Persian empire. And you can already see the drama. The other two high officials had been with Darius and with his, into his rise of, with, of power. And all of a sudden, this new guy who comes out of nowhere uh, gets rank above him. And to make matters worse, this new guy isn't even Persian. This, this is not how it was supposed to work. These two guys have been faithfully alongside Darius for this long. They were supposed to rise to power, not this other guy. So verse four says, then the high official and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They went on a witch hunt. Right? Let's, let's call all his old friends. Let's, all, let's find all the people that don't like him. Let's, let's talk to his old girlfriends. Uh, let's scrub his social media accounts. Let's, let's uh, hack into his email. Let's figure out all the, the th all the dirt that we can get on this guy because, I mean, six decades in a foreign land, in exile, he must have something that he's hiding. Maybe some skeletons in the closet. Something that he must have done wrong that we can leverage so that this guy never steps foot into office. Keep reading, verse four but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So you're telling me that this guy spent over six decades in foreign exile and they could find no fault. He was rubbing shoulders with some of the most powerful people in the entire world. He wielded a ton of influence over a lot of people and he still didn't have anything that they could find fault in. They could find no wrong against Daniel. And the Bible says it's because he was faithful. He was wholeheartedly living for God in every area of life. So the conspirators are like, well, we can't find a stain, so let's make one. Verse five, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. In other words, there were no shady dealings that they could unearth or anything like that that they could exploit. There weren't relationships that they could leverage. So they said, all right, we know that he's about one thing and one thing only. He's about his God, so let's use that against him. Okay, verse six. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. 
All the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors have agreed the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. That whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except for you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish this injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So the conspirators came to the king with great flattery. They were like, hey, king, you're, you're awesome, you're great, um, and we should make sure that everyone knows how awesome and great you are. Uh, let's make sure that nobody seeks um, counsel outside of you. Nobody in your kingdom should seek counsel outside of you because you are the supreme leader. You know everything. You're the appointed king. Where else would they go for wisdom? So let's put that into law, they say. Seems harmless. And as a new king coming into power, it makes sense for him. So King Darius agrees. He signs the law into um, effect. And he says, anyone who's found petitioning another god or another person that is not King Darius they will be fed to the lions. And there it was. The trap had been set. And from the sound of the following verses, it sounds like this decree was weeks or months in the making. Lobbyists were lobbying. People were kind of vying for votes. News was spreading. And everyone in the kingdom at this point had agreed to vote yes on question one. Limit prayer to only King Darius. All right, read what happens next in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks for his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Now, Daniel knew, just like everybody else in the kingdom, knew full well that this was coming. He knew the implications of what all of this was going to mean after it became uh, assigned into law. He knew full well how it was going to make his life very difficult for the coming weeks, months, and years. Maybe even lead to the end of his life. He had known the consequence of this new law for some time. So what should surprise us is that between Verse 9, the law getting signed and passed. And 10, Daniel going into his room, which has surprised us is there's no waffling. There's no inner dialogue of Daniel's wondering what he should do next and how he should skirt around this new law. Daniel was not conflicted over what move to make next. He wasn't panicking. Instead, he goes about his day just like he's done for the last 60 years. Verse 10, when Daniel knew the document was signed, he went to his house where he had windows to his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees, not just once, but three times in prayer to God, as he had done previously. I mean, put yourself in your, his, his shoes, his situation. Knowing that this injunction was signed into place, knowing the consequences that you could be fed to lions, what would you have done? You toned it down a little bit, right? Like you probably maybe pray still, right? Because you're devoted to God, but you'd go into the closet in your room where no one can see you. You might not pray for 
three times a day, you kind of cut it down to once so that you mitigate the risk, right? Or whatever it is, you'd switch it up. You, you, would, you would probably compromise just enough to ensure your own safety. I mean, what does Daniel have to prove anymore? He's well-aged, he's a senior saint. Why, why does he have to keep doing this? But that's just it. For Daniel, this wasn't a performance. For Daniel, he wasn't spitting in the face of injustice and putting on some political demonstration. For Daniel, he was just doing what he's always done ever since he arrived here in exile. He wasn't seizing some opportunity to make a point. This wasn't performative religion for him. For Daniel, this was Monday. This is what he does. He just does this every day. So everything is going according to plan for the conspirators. And after seeing Daniel pray, because they expected this uh, in the upper chamber, they go back to the king. And the first thing they do is remind the king, hey, remember, when you sign these things into law, it is irrevocable. Irrevocable. How do you say that? Irrevocable. Uh, I don't know. Um, But it's irrevocable. I'm going to keep switching it because I can't decide. Um, Irrevocable uh, by law. Why? Because they knew that the king had a soft spot for Daniel. They knew. They knew that the king might change his mind when they they hear that Daniel had broken this law. Because remember, Daniel was going to be second in command. He was going to be right next to the king, the the right-hand man. So they, they uh, they reminded him, hey, you can't change your mind. Remember this. So then they brought the charge before the king and said, hey, verse 13, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you or the injunction that you have signed. He makes petition three times a day. And verse 14 tells us that this is the moment where King Darius realizes what he had just done. He too had been tricked. He was duped. He was now participating in this act of injustice. So he was trying to figure out ways to rescue Daniel, but it was already law. Nothing he can do. So in verse 16, the king commands that Daniel be cast into the lion's den. But just before the stone is rolled over the face of um, the lion's den, the king says to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Think about that for a minute. Do you realize the magnitude of what this pagan king is saying to Daniel just before his death? May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Even after Darius realizes he can't do anything to deliver Daniel in his own power, Darius is so shaped by Daniel's faith that he looks to Daniel's God for help. May your God deliver you. This is the impact of faithfulness over the long haul. Daniel doesn't flaunt his faith, but he doesn't hide it. Darius knows the God he serves. The new king is fully aware that Daniel serves the God of Israel. He's seen it up close and personal. He's seen the impeccable character of Daniel. He's seen the impact that Daniel has had on everyone around him. This is the impact of a faithful servant of God who leverages their gifts as a blessing to those around him in every opportunity that God provides. This is what happens. 
You don't have to be the guy on the megaphone in, in Kenmore Square so that everybody knows that you're a Christian. You don't have to be the guy with the, the latest and greatest and contemporary Christian wear. Do they still do that? I don't know if they have Christian t-shirts anymore. But uh, you don't have to be the guy with, you know, Christian music blasting in your cubicle. But please don't underestimate the impact of doing your job really well and with high integrity. Don't underestimate the impact of telling the truth, becoming a trusted voice on your team. Don't underestimate the impact of, of living out your faith in a hostile culture over the long haul. Right? Sure, if you know Daniel's story, he had some extraordinary moments, but the bulk of his interactions with those around him, especially King Darius, were just everyday, mundane things. Him living out his faith regularly. And you can now see the impact that he's had on a, a pagan king. And in verse 18, he's got the king all worried over his well-being. The Persian king is sick and can't sleep. He, he's worried sick over this Jewish exile. Uh, the king's fasting. The, the king denies any diversion of entertainment. Uh, he can't even sleep because he obviously loves Daniel and cares for him. Why? Well, because he's been cared for by Daniel. Daniel tells him the truth. Daniel gives him wise counsel. Daniel's a trusted confidant full of integrity. Daniel probably prayed for him during, during the tumultuous kind of takeover. So Daniel spends the night in the lions, then surrounded by a pack of hungry lions. But by Daniel chapter six, if you've read this book uh, up to this point, you would rem be reminded of the events of Daniel chapter three, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. And so what you're expecting is God somehow to flip the script. So verse 20 says, Early that morning, King Darius deliriously runs out of bed, knocks on the stone, and he, and he, has to, uh, he shouts in anguish, and he asks the question, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And after what seemed like an eternity of silence, Daniel shouts back through the stone, Oh, King Live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. And when the stone was rolled away, not a single scrape was found on his body. Daniel's head was comfortably laid on a lion's belly and the lions were never so tame. Now in that day, if you had falsely accused somebody of something, you were then to take on their punishment. So in verse 24, the king commands these conspirators, their wives and children to get thrown into the lion's den. And it says before their bodies hit the ground, the lions devoured them and broke every bone in their bodies. Now I wanna draw your attention to a couple things we can learn from Daniel chapter six. The first thing is the thing I've been saying. The long-term faithfulness in a hostile world is built through deliberate and daily devotion to God. Long-term faithfulness in a hostile world is built through de deliberate and daily devotion to God. You wanna know how Daniel lasted this long in Babylon? 
What's a secret sauce? I think we just saw it. Every single day for the last six decades, he went to his house, up to his second floor, opened the windows, got on his knees facing Jerusalem in prayer and petition to God. In other words, he spent deliberate time with God. And I know that sounds so elementary, so simple, but it's profoundly countercultural, especially in our day. In our day, we don't equate discipline with joy. If, it, if it's too hard, then it, it's not worth it. it. It possibly can't be good for us. Um, everything's under this banner of anything that is good should feel good. But the thing is, if you think about it, we apply discipline to so many areas of life. For example, it's New Year's Day, right? So some of you guys have resolutions. Some of you have maybe resolved to live healthier lives. Well, how do you do that? You discipline yourself by getting better eating habits and more exercise in order to be healthier, right? We assume discipline ruins joy. Discipline doesn't lead to joy, but it's quite the opposite. In order to truly enjoy something, it requires discipline. If you love reading, what are you gonna do? You carve out time to read at the expense of doing other things. If you love people, you will make time for them, right? The same is true for your relationship with God. Spiritual disciplines like reading your Bible or praying, uh, doing the, the Bible reading for this year, being present in Christian community like this. These are the disciplines that allow your roots to grow deep so that when life grows difficult, which it will, you can stand tall. Deep joy in Jesus is cultiv cultivated through these daily disciplines of devotion. And that's, this is not dutiful religion. This is what you do when you delight in something. You deliberately make room for it, right? And lastly, I, wanna, I want you to notice the content of Daniel's prayer. If you knew your life was on the line and your, your death was coming very soon, what would you be praying about? Your prayer would sound something like, God, please rescue me, help me. Or if you, you kind of lean the other way a little bit more um, offensive, you'd be like, God, please destroy the king, yeah. right? You'd ask him to do something to save you uh, so that you uh, can continue living. You don't want to go to your death. But instead, Daniel does what? Verse 10. He gave thanks before his God. That was the content of his prayer. He gave thanks before his God. Before his death sentence, he was giving thanks just as he had always done. Why? Why was his prayer full of thanksgiving and not anything else? Well, it's because Daniel didn't need deliverance from lions he was already delivered from death. Daniel didn't need to get right before God so that he could be saved by God. He was already rescued. See, one way you can read Daniel chapter six is you could say, be righteous, do the right thing, because if you do, then God will deliver you from the lions. But that's inconsistent with the Christian gospel. That's antithetical to the ways of Jesus. Daniel doesn't need to impress God 
uh, to stay on his good side. His faith is already firmly rooted in God's unwavering faithfulness to him, even in the most difficult situations. Just consider Hebrews chapter 11, which kind of alludes to this. It's a famous hall of faith. The best of the best of of people that have followed Jesus, if you want to consider it like that, men and women with impeccable track records of faithfulness to God. And it says this, through faith, these men and women conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. Yes, 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 and amen. But it doesn't stop there. Even these faithful men and women, it also says these same people, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered, mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. See, the promise of the Christian life isn't live a good life and good things will happen to you. The enduring promise of the Christian life is this. Whatever the circumstance, God will be with you. Whatever the circumstance, good or bad, God will be with you. Daniel didn't need God to save him from the lions. What Daniel wanted was God to be with him in the lion's den. And the reason why Christians can face every sort of trial and evil with thankfulness and not panic because we know that whatever the situation or circumstance, God is with us and he will be with us in it and he will be with us through it. Here's a promise to those who trust in God from Paul's letter in Romans 8. Paul says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Continues and he says, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I hope you hear it in their city on the hill. Lion's den or not, second in command or not, there is no need for us to fear. Jesus has already defeated our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and death. Whatever this year has in store for you, let's cultivate a deeper and a more abiding joy in him through the discipline of daily devotion. We don't need to fear, we don't need to panic, Let's stay faithful and true because Jesus is with you both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. What a God we serve that you are faithfully present with us in the greatest of days and the most difficult of days. And so as we step into this new year, I pray that you will remind us that your presence is all we need. God with us is the promise we need. So I pray that you would remind us that you are with us both now 
and forevermore, whatever this world will throw at us this year. What we need is more of you. We thank you for that promise. We lean on it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.